1984. Do you remember where you were? I was in junior high. I was a seventh grader in 1984, and I had one of the most amazing days of my life. I was playing on a soccer team. I played soccer all growing up, and we were part of a team that, that made it into a tournament on a weekend, which was like a state tournament. And uh, as we were playing the tournament, we were making it through the tournament, and we got all the way until the semifinal game. And this was a big game because you win the semifinal game, where do you go? You get to go to the finals, right? And so I finally got a chance in that game to go in. See, I wasn't that great of a player. I, I tried the best I could. I was often a little guy, but I, but I was excited when I got to play. And, um, and I got put in. I was, on, I was put in the forward position, in the right forward position, and I had my moment. I had to, got to play. It was late into the second half. The game was still zero to zero. And, uh, and, and all of a sudden, it was like time slowed down. And the ball was rolling towards me. And I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And I didn't screw it up. And I kicked that ball. And somehow, it made it into the net. And I scored a goal, maybe the first goal I had of that season. And we ended up winning one to nothing. And I got to be lifted onto the shoulders of my team Come on now, where are you? This was my shining moment. Celebrate this moment with me. I mean, I, have, I don't have many. I got to hold on to them. I got to hold on to these moments. And, and, and it was like, oh, I just remember riding high. Like, how could that be? I scored the winning goal to get us into the finals on the next day. And it was an exhilarating feeling. And winning feels that way, doesn't it? It feels great. The next day, we came back on Sunday to finish off the tournament in our final game for the championship. And we got blown out. And we felt on the bottom. And isn't that the irony? Isn't that sometimes what happens? We have some great wins, some great victories. And then on the heels of those things come some depressing defeats, some losses that knock us down. And we kind of go, how did this happen? Where did this come from? And we find ourselves on that, on that roller coaster. And we're looking at different battles that we face. And how do we, how do we deal with that when we have these great victories? And then we have the defeat that comes on, on the other side of that. And today we're going to be looking at the battles that we face, not just the big battles that we overcome, but the power of little battles that can knock us out, battles that are for our heart, battles that are for our soul, battles that are for our integrity. So today as we talk about these battles that we face, I want us to just prepare our hearts to hear what God has to say. And so let's take a moment to pray. And I just ask you in your own heart to, to, to speak to God and say, Lord, I'm here, I'm listening, tell me what I need to hear today. Father, we are here, we have this time now set aside to dive into your word and into your truths, and Father, may they not just be truths that are out there, but may they take root in our heart and make a difference in the way that we live our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in this series, 31 Kings, and if you are new or newer here today and you go, what's 31 Kings all about? It's a story through the book of Joshua. And the 31 kings in the book of Joshua are the kings that are occupying the promised land. The book of Joshua is all about how the people of God, after hundreds of years of waiting and being in slavery and even 40 years of traveling in the desert with Moses, how they come to the edge of the promised land. And when Joshua takes over as leader, the whole book is about them occupying this promised land that God had given them. But the problem is the, the promised land is occupied. It has 31 kings, and so it's not just going to be God's going, here it is, take it over. They're going to have to fight for that. They're going to have to conquer this land. And so over the last several weeks as we've been looking at this, uh, at this story, we began by understanding that, that in the beginning in Joshua chapter 1, God says to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Why? Because you're going to be facing 31 kings. 
You've got battles ahead of you. You've got challenges in front of you. If you're a believer and you're, you're new in your faith or you've had some great victories and, and now comes the rest of your life, it, we say, God, there's still battles to fight and you're going to need to be strong and courageous to, to conquer what's in front of you. But you know what? God said, I am with you. Be strong, courageous, and go because I am with you. And so they go and then they come right up to the Jordan River and here's this obstacle, this spiritual battle. It's the gateway to the promised land and God miraculously opens up the waters. He parts the waters as, he lead, as they lead through with the Ark of the Covenant and the people pass by. God is making a way. He opened the door into this promised land. And then where we left off prior to the, the week before, we talked about Jericho. And there they stood between the Jordan River that closed up behind them in this big battle of Jericho, this powerful city with its king and its double-walled city up on a hill. How are they going to take down the city, the first city, the first king in the promised land? And through the miraculous story of God, he knocks down those walls. They circle it in prayer. They surrender to him. And with a mighty shout, the walls came crumbling down. And so today we pick up the story with the Israelites, with Joshua. I mean, just imagine for a moment that you were them. You've been wandering for 40 years. You finally get to the promised land. Not only now are you in the promised land, I mean, God just miraculously marched you through the Jordan River. Now you come up against Jericho. You've just defeated Jericho. Everyone's afraid of you. Everyone is just, you know, of the other nations are wondering what's going on, and you're going, we are in the promised land, and God is giving it to us. He's, he's just opening the doors for us. We're unstoppable. I mean, how awesome must that have felt? God is with us. He's walking with us. He's given us these victories. And that's where they find themselves. And today, as we pick up the story in, in chapter 7 and 8, they look in the distance, and now they're getting ready to face their second king. They're getting ready to face the second city. And it's a city that's about as big as its name. It's spelled A-I and pronounced I. The city of I, 12,000 people, a small city, very small compared to Jericho. Jericho had the big fortresses in the city. I was very, barely defended, and it was just 12,000 people. The army of, of the Israelites, Joshua's army, was 30,000 strong. This is, this is a no-brainer, right? 30,000 strong, a city of 12,000. They kind of look over, and, and Joshua decides what needs to be done. Ah, we need about two to 3,000 men to conquer this city. Let's go with 3,000 to be safe. And so they go, and they go to, to take out I. And, and as they attack the city, they can't take it. And they're meeting opposition and resistance, and pretty soon they're forced back, and now they're retreating, and they're running in defeat, and some of their men are being killed, and they come back to the camp, and Joshua cannot believe what has just happened. How in the world is this possible that we could not conquer I? I mean, imagine at the end of World War II, right, as the Allied forces in the United States have just now pushed back this Nazi army and the Axis forces, and, and now there's this, this surrender that has happened after years of fighting. And they've had this huge military conquest, and they're celebrating victory, right? V-Day, it's, it's over, it's finished, it feels great. And then somebody comes to them and says, oh, wait, you forgot about one more stronghold. It's Switzerland. And those guys are tough. They've got their Swiss army knives, and they are, they're holed up in the mountains. They're nursed on chocolate and Swiss cheese. I mean, this is going to be tough. And you're going, this is, we got this. And imagine they try to take that and are defeated. I mean, it was this kind of mind-blowing situation that, that Joshua and the Israelites faced. How in the world could we not defeat I when God has brought us through the Jordan River and taken out Jericho? What's going on? What's happening here? Well, behind the scenes, something's happening. And what Joshua doesn't know is that back at the Battle of Jericho, 
When they were going in, there was a man named Achan, and he did something that he shouldn't have done. And so as we look at the story and we think about what Achan did, he goes into the city, they conquer the city, and the city crumbles down, the men come in, and they're fighting, and they're they're starting to see all the things that are there. But here's the thing, there was an instruction that came. And it was in Joshua chapter 6, verses 18 and 24. This was an instruction at the defeat of Jericho. God said to them, Do not take any of the things set apart for destruction, or you yourselves will be completely destroyed, and you will bring trouble on all Israel. Then the Israelites burned the city and everything in it, and only things made of silver, gold, bronze, or iron were kept for the treasury of the Lord's house. So what was going on here is God was saying, look, you're going to take Jericho, but here's this important instruction. This is important for our story today. When you go into Jericho, you're going to see all this stuff, but I want you to completely destroy everything. And the only things of value that I want you to keep, the gold, the bronze, the silver, right, that you bring into the treasury of the Lord's house. Everything else must be destroyed. But see, there was a man named Achan, a soldier. He must have rushed into the city And when he found that there was this victory and all these things were there, he may have gone into somebody's house, into a place. And there, what did he see? He saw somebody's secret stash. 200 coins of silver. And even a bar of gold. And and all of a sudden he's wrestling through going, what what do I do with this? I mean, I've I've been a son of a slave. We've been wandering the desert as nomads for years. This is God's promised land. He's He's blessing me. Look, he's given this to me, and I know I'm not supposed to take this, but, but he takes it, and he keeps it for himself. And there's even a robe, a fine robe there, and he must not have even had those kind of clothes before, a fine robe from Babylon. And he maybe tried it on and maybe looked at it and goes, i got to have that. And he takes that too. And he takes these things and he hides them, and he goes back to his tent, and he buries it deep underneath his tent so that nobody would know. Now, Joshua had no idea that this had taken place. And maybe we think of this thing and we think, ah, what, what, what's the big deal? But in Joshua chapter 7, verse 10 and 11, Lord says to Joshua, he says to him, Get up. Why are you lying on your face like this? Israel has sinned and broken my covenant. They have stolen the things that I've commanded to be set apart for me. And they have not only stolen them, they have also lied about it and hidden the things among their belongings. That is why the Israelites are running from their enemies in defeat. For now Israel has been set apart for destruction. This is kind of a big turn of events, right? You're Joshua, you're leading, and you're thinking you're unstoppable, and now God's saying, you've lied, you've stolen, you've hidden some things, and now you are set apart for destruction. Whoa, whoa, time out, God. This is not the way it's supposed to work. What do you mean we've lied, we've stolen? Again, Joshua didn't know these things. So in Joshua chapter 7, verse 12 and 13, God says to him, I will not remain with you any longer unless you destroy the things among you that were set apart for destruction. Get up, command the people to purify themselves in preparation for tomorrow. You will never defeat your enemies until you remove these things. There is this idea that this stuff can't be here. You have to get right. You have to get rid of these things that are holding you back, that are set apart for destruction. And so as it happens, the clans were called together. And then the clans, from the clans, a tribe was singled out. And one by one, from, tra- from, from clan to tribe to family to, to the individuals, all of a sudden, Achan was centered out, and he was standing there in front of the council and in front of the leaders. And Joshua says, why have you brought trouble on us? 
why have you done this? Tell us what you've done. And he says, look, yeah, I took those things. And this is what he says in Joshua 7, 21. It's so simple, and I think we can relate to this. He says, I wanted them so much that I took them. Very simple. I don't know if it really was a confession. At this point, he was pretty much found out. He had done this thing that was wrong, and God is serious about this thing. And this is where the Old Testament can sometimes be cruel and and bloody and, and difficult to understand. And we're actually going to dig into that a little bit more next week. But the consequence for, for Joshua's, uh, for Achan's sin here, was that he was killed. Him and his whole household. And all the things, all the belongings, all the possessions, all those things were burned and the things that he took were given and brought to the treasury. And after all that destruction and all, after that punishment was, was leveraged, stones were put on top of this pile and this heap, and it says that this all happened in the valley of trouble. And that is the end of our message this morning. Have a great week. I hope you are encouraged by what you've heard this morning. Whew, heavy stuff. This is heavy stuff. It's part of the story, and as we teach this through, going, what's happening here? What's going on here? Is, why is God so, so angry in this way, and why are they being punished, and, and does he really want all these things? Why is he so demanding? What's, what's happening here? There are two important lessons that we learn out of this passage, and it's a lesson that we see all throughout Scripture, from the very beginning, through these stories, through the end of the Old Testament, into Jesus, and it's this principle, and it begins with this. The first one is this. The first and the best belong to God. The first and the best belongs to God. This is a principle that we cannot get away from all throughout scriptures, that the first and the best belongs to God. In this scenario, as, as we think about Jericho and, and what was asked was to, to set these things aside, set them aside for destruction. We think that doesn't make sense. God, why would this stuff be destroyed? It has value. It has goodness to it. Why is this being destroyed? He said, set it apart. And when we set something apart or when something is destroyed uh, for God, it, another word for that is sacrifice. When something is sacrificed, when something is given up, something of value is given, it's being sacrificed. It could be used for something else, but it is an act of worship to God. And what's interesting, this is so important that we have to note, Jericho had a unique role in this whole taking over of the promised land. And the unique role of Jericho is that it was the first city. Right? You come through the Jordan, the first city that had to be conquered was, was Jericho. And what did God ask of the first city? He said, of the first city, of the spoils and of the things that are found in that city, of all the, the, the goods and the items that are there, you ought to, to, to burn everything except these things of value. They are to be consecrated and given to the Lord and given to his treasury. And now you might go, this is crazy. God, why would you ask of that? These people have been wandering for years. They don't have any things. Now they finally come up on this first city. They have a chance to have all these things. Why are you not letting them have any of it? Why are you wanting it all and needing it all for yourself? It's the principle of the tithe. He went there. Pastor preaching about tithe. It's the principle of the tithe. You can't get away from it in Scripture. The tithe is the first and the best belongs to God. You know what Jericho was in, in, in relation to the promised land? Jericho was the tithe of the promised land. You want the rest of the promise? You want everything that God has for you? You wouldn't even have Jericho. You wouldn't have anything if it didn't come from God. You wouldn't have gotten across the Jordan River. You would have been wiped out by the city of Jericho. You would have nothing if it didn't come from God. And so in this first principle, he's saying, set apart this first part. Everything belongs to God. All of it, even the last 200 coins and the one gold bar that Achan took, 
left something on the table that God said, you did not consecrate it all to me. What is behind this? What's behind this? God is saying, look, without me, you wouldn't have anything. And when we think about our first and we think about our best, that's hard to give. It's hard to give our best, but an offering has to cost us something. Otherwise, it's not an offering. Otherwise, it's not a sacrifice. There's a story in the New Testament where, where a woman comes to Jesus and he's sitting with his disciples and she has this expensive bottle of perfume, very expensive, and she pours it out on Jesus' feet and begins to worship him. And the disciples are going, whoa, whoa, time out, whoa, Jesus, what's she doing? You know, tell her to stop. This is expensive. You know what we could do? We could sell this perfume and give it to, and, and the money we could give to the poor. And Jesus says, no, let her. It's an act of worship. It's an act of sacrifice. It's costing something. It shows of the value and the meaning and, and what she feels in her heart. It costs us something. David, King David, Wanted to go and worship at one time and, and wanted to bring his offering. And somebody else said, David, you've done so much. Let me give you, I'm going to provide the offering for you, the sacrifice for you. And you know what David says? Thanks, but no thanks. How can I bring an offering that has cost me nothing? Is it really an offering if it has cost me nothing? I remember as a kid, you know, going to church and uh, mom giving me like a quarter, you know, for the offering in, in, uh, in Sunday school. Anyone, right? Maybe inflation now is a dollar. I don't know what you get. I mean, it was easy as a kid. Even, even well, still sometimes a little bit hard because you're like, it's a quarter, it's a dollar. I could use it, but it didn't cost me anything, so I could just give it. But when it costs us something, it really speaks of that sacrifice. In Malachi chapter 1, the last book in the, in, in the Old Testament, there's a lot of talk about these offerings and sacrifices in the temple. And what was happening was, uh, and God was calling the people out, he says, you're not bringing me the best sacrifices. What are you doing? And he said, what do we want we're doing? We're bringing, you, we're bringing you the sacrifices, God. You asked, you know, you asked for a sheep to be, to be offered, and we're doing that. Whoa, whoa, time out. What sheep are you bringing? Are you bringing the first and the best? Uh, no. Uh, God said, you know what you're bringing me? You're bringing me the crippled sheep. You're bringing me the one that's diseased. You're bringing me one that's on its last leg. You're bringing me that three-legged, you know, that three-legged sheep that, that, that you can't use at home anymore. And you're bringing that as the offering and going, God, this is for you. And he's saying, because of that, you're not, not going to experience all that I have. He says, why should he show you any favor at all? There's a tension there. It's difficult when we bring a gift and especially as we think about tithing, and if we just think about this literal tithe of a 10%. If you're a family that makes $50,000, have an income, $50,000, and you tithe $5,000, that's hard. That hurts. That's difficult. And it's difficult when neighbors or others who don't do that, who are in the same situation as you, have that $5,000 and are going, I'm taking my family to Disneyland. And I'm going out to eat, and I can do these things, and you're going... It costs me something. It means there's things I, I have to do without because I'm putting God first and foremost. But I'm not just doing this as a transaction. I understand that I wouldn't even have anything if it wasn't for God. And I want to be about God's business and what he's called me to do. And I want to give this as an act of worship and as a sacrifice. The first and the best cost us something, but the first and the best always, always belong to God. It's the principle that he's given. The second is this. The blessing of the rest hinges on what you do with the first and the best. The blessing of the rest hinges on what you do with the first and the best. It's not just about the first and the best. It's about the rest as well. And so what you do with the first and the best determines how God is going to bless the rest. One of my favorite verses, one that has been shaping for me in life, is Matthew 6.33. 
And it's actually in a passage about finances and stuff and things and the worries of our life. And, and Jesus himself is speaking and he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What then? And then all these things will be added unto you. First God and his righteousness and then the rest. The rest come. Get the first part right and put God in that first part and watch what he does with the rest of it. And so we see this principle of the first and the best has an impact on the rest. And, and in that same book in Malachi that we were talking about earlier with the disease and the crippled sacrifices that people were bringing, at the end of that chapter, God is saying to the people, he's saying, look, you've cheated me. And they're indignant going, how have we cheated you, God? We've, we've been bringing the sacrifices. We've been trying to do things. He says, you're withholding the whole tithe. You're not bringing the last of it. You're like Achan. You're not. You're withholding that last little bit. And he says, and so how can I bless you? And then he says this interesting thing. He says, test me in this. Test out this principle for your life. Put me first. Bring in the whole tithe and see what happens. He says, I want to open up the floodgates of heaven. I want to pour out blessings so much that you will not have room to contain it. That's what God is saying. Look, you're holding on to the first as though this is everything to you and means everything. What, you're un what you don't understand is by holding on to this, you are locking the door to what God wants to do and wants to bless and how he wants to just shower his blessings on you through that. It's this principle we see again and again. Think about it in this story. They didn't give everything at Jericho. They lost I. And if you don't beat I, you're not going to beat any of these other kings behind you, and that's it. So you either settle for your 200 coins and the, and the gold bar and what you have there, and the, rest of the, and the rest of this promise is over. And pretty much you're going to get beaten back, and it's going to be all done. But what happens is they go back to I. They do this. They get right with God in this particular piece. Now they go back for another battle. They make a battle plan. They go in, and they defeat I. They defeat them easily. But look at Joshua chapter 8, verse 2, what it says when it comes to the spoils, when it comes to what is in that city, God says to them, but this time you may keep the captured goods and the cattle for yourselves. Did you catch what's happening here? You withheld a little bit before, so you weren't going to get anything else. But if you gave it all, the first and the best, this is the beginning of the, the, the rest of it. And you have the blessings. This is for you. Take it. God is not wanting to, to keep them back. God is not wanting to keep them low. He's wanting to say, this is for you. I'm providing this for you. And not just I, I'm providing for you the rest of the promised land. If you don't get this principle right in here, right now at the beginning, there is no rest of the promised land. There is no rest of the blessing. It begins with the first and the best. And in I, he showed them the blessing of the rest hinges on what you do with the first and the best. We all want God desperately in our lives. We all want to experience what he has for us. We've talked about life to the fullest. God, what do you have? I want the fullness of your life. I want everything you have for me in my life, in my soul, in my spirit, in my family, in the world around me, and what you've called me to do. And God's saying, yes, I have all that for you. What are you doing with the first? I want your first and I want your best because I have so much blessing. And when I know your heart is in the right place, and when I know our relationship's in the right place, I can do things through you like you can't imagine. Trust me in this, he says. Test me in this. And it begins with us. In the New Testament, Paul writes, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. We are the sacrifice. And Jesus says, if you don't lay down your life, you will never find true life. 
If you don't give me all of you and who you are first, you're not going to find what's on the other side. And we like to hold on and hold on and think we got it better and are afraid of what we're going to lose if we actually fully trust God and if we fully surrender to him because he doesn't really know what he's doing and I got it and he's given me a little bit and I'm going to hold on to that versus saying, God, I trust you. Let it flow through me and I want to receive the life and what you have for me on the other side. Now these kind of messages sometimes make people uncomfortable, makes us a little bit uncomfortable about God. Why does God do this? Why does he demand something from us? I mean, doesn't God own the cattle on the thousand hills, the scripture says? He has everything available to him. Why does he need my resources? Why does he need my time? Why does he need me? I mean, isn't it just God bless us? I mean, it seems kind of selfish of God, maybe a little self-centered, a little egotistical, and then we got to bring this as his worship to him, and, and whoa, you know, bow down to God, and it's just a manipulation thing from the church, and anyone been there? God is not asking us to do something he didn't first do and didn't do way bigger than he's asking us to do because God gave us his first and he gave us his best and he laid down his life for us before we ever did anything for him, before we ever deserved anything from from him. Look at 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from your empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. He paid for you with the precious lifeblood of Christ, the sinless, spotless, perfect, unblemished lamb of God. See, Jesus isn't asking us to do something that he didn't already go ahead and do in such a bigger way to pay for us, to lay down his life, because he understood that if I don't give my first and best, that my people will not even have the rest. You will have the kind of life that comes from surrendering, and God paid that price through Jesus Christ. And it's this principle that he is trying to teach us his heart and who he is, and that when we get this, there's a freedom that comes. There's a life that flows through us. There's a blessing that flows through us. There's an impact that we have when we become generous and open and putting God first and allowing him to work through us. I know we all want to experience the rest. We want to see what's next. We want God to bring us the entire promised land like Joshua did with his people. And just because we follow this principle now, don't get me wrong, that everything's going to be easy and peachy keen and, and rainbows and lollipops and puppies, you know, for the rest of your life. There are still another 32, uh, 30 kings, right? 29 kings after the city of Ai. There's still battles to face, and that's what we're going to talk about next week. But the principle begins, the first and the best belong to God. And what happens with the rest hinges on what we do with the first and the best. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a difficult teaching for us to digest at times. Father, I know those here that have learned this principle that are putting into practice, even as hard as it may be at times, God, we understand the power of this to captivate our heart, to unite us with you and your purposes and what you have for us. But God, I just thank you first and foremost for your sacrifice for us the price that Jesus Christ paid on the cross for our sins, for my sins, for the forgiveness that you brought. God, if anyone here today, I don't know, God, I don't know what we're holding on to. I don't know what it is that we want and we take. I don't know what we're hiding under our tent, what we're keeping from you, that area of our life that is just not fully surrendered to you. God, give us a freedom today to just let that go. Give us an ease in our spirit to just unclench our fists 
and to just give ourselves fully to you and to say, God, we put you first. Take my best. God, thank you for the blessings that you bring and the life and the freedom and the hope and the peace that comes from right relationship with you. May no one here today leave without that assurance, God. Speak. Amen.